Hello, my name is Dr. Perry Fine, Professor of Anesthesiology and Attending Physician at the Pain Management Center at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. I'm pleased to be your host to this series of programs on managing chronic pain in primary care. In this, our eighth episode, we'll continue to discuss safe drug use. We'll focus on the case of a patient with postherpetic neuralgia in order to illustrate how to assess and stratify patients to ensure safe drug use in primary care practice. And joining us to talk about clinical management strategies when prescribing opioids for persistent pain is my colleague, Dr. Russell Portnoy, Professor of Neurology and Anesthesiology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Chair of the Department of Pain Medicine and Palliative Care at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City. Thank you, Perry. I'd like to begin with the observation that all clinicians have the ability to assess and manage chronic pain and can incorporate opioid therapy into pain management strategies by applying basic principles and making appropriate referrals. Patients with chronic pain are extremely diverse, and treatment depends on a careful assessment of the nature of the pain, including its impact and its comorbidities. Patients with complex syndromes of pain and pain-related disability often do best with a multimodal strategy involving drug and non-drug therapies. Long-term opioid therapy is the mainstay for patients with active cancer or other advanced illnesses. Its use in chronic pain of other types remains controversial. Most pain specialists believe that the therapy can be very helpful in selected cases, and concern about side effects and the potential for drug abuse should not preclude a trial of an opioid drug when appropriate. The decision to offer patients long-term opioid therapy or to go from short-term therapy to long-term therapy begins with a detailed assessment to determine whether the potential benefits outweigh the risks. By seeking the answers to four key questions, a clinician can work through the decision-making process. First, what is conventional practice for this type of patient and this type of pain? Is the pain moderate to severe? Does the patient have a medical disorder that would lead to positioning of an opioid drug near the top of potential therapies? Second, are there any other therapies that have not been tried and are likely to have the same or better therapeutic index? These might be considered first. Third, does the patient have any specific comorbidities or concurrent treatments that might increase the risk of opioid therapy? And fourth, does the patient's history raise any concerns about responsible drug use? Would one stratify the patient into low, middle, or high risk in terms of problematic drug-related behavior? While the answers to these questions are not meant to exclude any patient from treatment, they can help to position long-term opioid therapy against other options and serve to remind practitioners that risk assessment and management are essential aspects of opioid therapy. With these drugs, risk means not only side effects and toxicities, but also the potential for abuse, addiction, and diversion. Risk stratification also may suggest the value of a referral to a pain or addiction specialist. Long-term opioid therapy always begins with a trial, and patients should be monitored on a regular basis for outcomes that include efficacy, function, side effects, and responsible drug use behavior. I've found the four A's approach to risk assessment, which involves asking about analgesia, adverse effects, activities, and aberrant drug-related behavior, to be useful for assessing outcomes and monitoring patients on long-term opioid therapy. As this case will make clear, safe and effective long-term opioid therapy is grounded in astute risk assessment prior to treatment and during the drug trial, 
and ongoing evaluation of drug-related behavior during treatment is essential. Cynthia Greeley, a 70-year-old retired special education teacher, lived an active life until she was sidelined by posterpedic neuralgia, or PHN, in a T9 and T10 dermatomal distribution on the left side of her abdomen. She presented late in the course of acute herpes zoster and was treated with valacyclovir. The pain never declined, and a few months after her lesions had healed, the pain increased and then plateaued. The pain was moderate to severe, burning and stabbing, and was associated with severe hypersensitivity of the affected skin. During the period of acute herpes zoster, she was started on a gabapentinoid, gabapentin, three times daily, and a centrally acting analgesic with opioid effects, tramadol. When the pain increased, she phoned the office to report that she was unable to sleep or wear clothing on the affected area. She described herself as anxious and distressed. Ms. Greeley was given tramadol for what was expected to be an episode of severe acute pain. When she returned to the office, this time with stable, more severe pain consistent with posterpedic neuralgia, she indicated that the tramadol was ineffective and associated with mild somnolence. Her doctor reviewed the many options for pain control available. He decided on an increase in the gabapentin dosage regimen from 900 milligrams per day in three divided doses to 1200 milligrams per day in two divided doses. And he combined that with the trial of nortriptyline 25 milligrams at night and the lidocaine patch applied to the painful area. He reassured Ms. Greeley about the availability of many other treatments. He also noted, however, that she was highly distressed, sleep deprived, and clearly needed something that could have a prompt effect. He was inclined to try another opioid drug, a pure mu agonist opioid drug like hydromorphone in a short-acting formulation that could be easily titrated. Before doing so, however, he realized that a risk assessment is needed. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, it's Dr. good to Brown. see you. <laughs> There's Penny, huh? <laughs> Look at her, taking her easy. All right, good for you, Penny. How are you two? Are you still volunteering? Oh, well, Penny's fine. I'm terrible. And no, we're not volunteering. I I'm in too much pain. What's going on? Well, uh, I'm just getting nowhere with the drugs you prescribed. Mm. Uh, I'm in as much pain as ever. Well, sorry to hear that. Is the pain still as intense, burning, throbbing? Yes, and yes, it's just the same as ever. Um, uh, it feels like hot coals are being dragged over my body, and, and uh, it hurts even when I'm getting dressed. And sometimes when Penny's fur rubs up against me, uh, it makes me want to scream. Ooh. Okay. Can you show me um, where it hurts? Uh, it goes from there to there in an even wider area than where the blisters were. Uh-huh. That's not uncommon. All right, let's talk about the pain a little bit. When you were here before, you rated the pain as a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. Now what is it? Well, it's still a 10. Uh, but like I said before, sometimes it shoots up to a 20. <laughs> is the pain worse at a certain time of day or at night? It's worse at night. Sometimes it wakes me up. I can't get back to sleep. And the next day, I, I feel like a zombie. Mm. Posterpedic neuralgia is a complication of herpes zoster, or shingles, the reactivation of the varicella zoster, or chickenpox virus. Of the one million people with herpes zoster each year, an average of 10 to 15% will develop persistent posterpedic neuralgia. 
The most significant risk factor for post-herpetic neuralgia is advanced age. The incidence of pain continuing beyond a few months increases after age 50, reaching 35% by age 80. Other risk factors include female sex, immunosuppression, greater initial acute pain, dermatomal injury, and a severe prodrome. Post-herpetic neuralgia causes a variety of painful and abnormal sensations, including spontaneous burning pain, intermittent sharp pain, hyperalgesia, dysesthesia, and allodynia. Secondary symptoms that further compromise quality of life are insomnia, depression, fatigue, loss of appetite and weight loss, and cognitive impairment. Post-herpetic neuralgia is debilitating, and despite the availability of numerous treatments, the patients affected by this syndrome commonly experience inadequate control of pain. Ms. Greeley is one such patient. Her physician is planning a series of interventions, but perceives the need to prescribe opioid medication now, given the severity of the pain and its adverse consequences. But before making the decision to step up her therapy and institute a trial of hydromorphone, her physician reassesses her and performs a risk evaluation specific to the opioid therapy. Are you able to do everything you need to? Dress, bathe, walk the dog? Yes but all the joy's gone out of it. I, I live alone and I just don't have the energy to do much other than the basics. I, I used to love long walks with Penny. Now it seems like a chore. Can you lie down for me, please? Oh, sure. Here we go. Keep your knees up. Okay. That's right. All right. I've got a pillow here for you. Thank you. Okay. Now, I'm going to palpate the area a little bit, all right? I just okay. need to know exactly where it hurts. Mm -hmm. How's this? That's not bad. Uh-huh. Well. Here? Ah, That's yes. Tender, huh? <laughs> yeah. How about that? Oh, yeah, it hurts there when I'm getting dressed. All right, now I want to listen uh, to the same areas. Uh-huh. Here we go. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Just one more. Okay. Oh. All right. Come back up now. Okay. Now, we've talked about how everyone recovers at a different rate. Right. I think things will improve. But first, I want you to understand what causes your pain, okay? Okay. I've got a pamphlet here. I want you to take a look at this. Uh, it should help explain exactly where it's coming from, where the pain is coming okay. from. Then, get dressed, meet me in the office, and uh, we'll talk about changing your drug regimen. Okay. We're going to get you feeling better. Be patient. <laughs> Thanks. Systemic and topical drug therapies are the most important strategies for PHN. Several agents are approved for this indication, including the gabapentinoids, gabapentin and pregabalin, the lidocaine 5% patch, and a high concentration capsaicin patch. One of the gabapentinoids and the lidocaine patch are typically first-line therapies, unless the patient is depressed. In this case, one of the analgesic antidepressants, either a tricyclic drug like nortriptyline or an SNRI, such as duloxetine, is the first-line approach. Patients with refractory pain 
typically undergo trials of several drugs, often in combination, including the gabapentinoids, antidepressants, other anticonvulsants, systemic drugs in several other classes, and several other topical drugs, such as low-dose capsaicin. Opioid therapy can be used as a short-term therapy for acute management of very severe pain, or more typically in PHN, it may be started with the intention to continue it indefinitely should it prove beneficial. If the intent is open-ended treatment, whether or not the patient is receiving an opioid drug now, it is essential to perform a risk assessment, structure the treatment in a manner that allows monitoring commensurate with that risk, and plan on an ongoing monitoring strategy that will identify drug-related problems early. Well, I think we can get this under control in various ways, but mm -hmm. here's what I want to start with. I'm going to start nortriptyline and keep you on gabapentin, but in a gastric retentive form, which means if you take it with food, it will work like an extended release medicine. Oh. I'm also considering starting you on a short-acting opioid. You could use this initially as needed, but if the benefits of the opioid are clear and you manage it well, it w I would consider changing it to a long-acting drug, which you would take continuously. But before I decide about the opioid, however, I'd like to ask you a few questions, okay? Mm -hmm. Have you ever used any illegal drugs? Um, no, of course not, never. Never? Never in your life? Well, I smoked marijuana in college, but that doesn't count, does it? What about prescription drugs? Have you ever had a problem taking them in excess or without a prescription? No, of course not. Well, except in college. Um, studying for exams, I sometimes took some diet pills I got from a friend. What about alcohol? Do you drink regularly or occasionally? Occasionally, socially, sometimes a glass of wine with dinner. Does anyone in your family have a history of drug or alcohol abuse? My brother, he's the only one. He's an alcoholic and a prescription drug user. Um, he's been on disability for years. He's a mess. He's uh, diagnosed as bipolar. Um, we drifted apart. I, I rarely speak to him. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, don't be. Those things happen. Well, what about you? I've known you a long time, but I don't recall. Have you ever seen a therapist for any psychological issues? Sure, of course, who hasn't? <laughs> well, it was a long time ago, before I came here. I was 30, and mm -hmm. I had a nasty divorce from my first husband, and, and I became very depressed. Were you on any drugs for your depression? I did take something. Um, I don't remember what, some sort of antidepressant, I suppose, but um, unlike my brother, I didn't become addicted or anything. I'm going to ask you to give us some urine for a drug test. This is routine before I prescribe an opioid. I will prescribe a short-acting opioid today on a trial basis. Assuming that helps after we adjust the dose, and also assuming the side effects like sleepiness and constipation are not a serious problem, and of course, assuming that you take it strictly according to instructions, then we'll continue it, or a drug like it. Now remember, you keep this out of reach of the dog, <laughs> or of any children who might happen to visit you. Just don't leave it lying around. Mm -hmm. And try to keep it out of the bathroom. The humidity <laughs> can affect medication. Oh. Okay. All right. When assessing a patient for the possibility of long-term opioid therapy, 
It's always important to ask about a personal history of alcohol or drug abuse, both illicit and prescription drugs, a family history of alcohol or drug abuse, and a history of major psychiatric disorder. A patient with any positives in this history should not be considered low risk. As the seriousness of the problems identified increases, the risk of opioid therapy going forward also should be considered to increase. If the risk is very high, such as it might be with someone who is actively abusing alcohol or drugs, then an opioid drug should not be prescribed at all, or at least not without assistance of a specialist, usually someone in addiction medicine. Dr. Brown is a concerned and compassionate physician. Although Ms. Greeley is not as low risk as he had anticipated, she doesn't appear to be at high risk either. From a universal precautions perspective, it is wise that he requested a urine drug screen. He should also be cautious about structuring therapy to reduce risk. He explains that he's prescribing the drug on a trial basis and that the prescription itself should be for a relatively small number of tablets. He adds hydromorphone to her regimen at a dosage of two milligrams every three hours as needed. He provides her with a prescription sufficient for six doses per day until a return visit in one week. The urine drug screen revealed no drugs of abuse. One week later, Ms. Greeley returns to the office requesting another prescription for hydromorphone, saying she ran out three days earlier. This raises a red flag for Dr. Brown. He must reassess her for aberrant drug-related behavior. Several screening questions identified her as having risk factors for problematic drug use. And the first assessment, after an opioid therapy trial is initiated, indicates non-adherence with Dr. Brown's instructions. Ms. Greeley has escalated her dose without approval. The question is why. Once detected, aberrant drug-related behavior demands renewed assessment. The information is needed to address a differential diagnosis. The differential diagnosis includes true addiction, so-called pseudo-addiction or non-adherence driven by desperation surrounding uncontrolled pain, a psychiatric disorder other than addiction associated with impulsive drug use, cognitive impairment, family issues, and even criminal intent to divert the drug. The challenge clinically is that these drivers of non-adherence can occur in any combination. In this case, the assessment reveals that Ms. Greeley openly acknowledges that she took extra doses, expresses regret and some shame about it, and attributes the behavior to a pain flare and reluctance to call the doctor. Given the nature of the problem in this assessment, the physician is willing to attribute it to pseudo-addiction and to continue the opioid medication trial. He recognizes that more time is needed to determine whether opioid therapy can be used safely by this patient, both to regain control over the prescribing and to test Ms. Greeley's ability to follow instructions. He writes the instructions for the use of hydromorphone on paper and hands it to her. He doubles the dosage to four milligrams every four hours as needed and writes a one-week supply assuming that four doses per day will be taken. He tells her to call the office if the pain is not adequately controlled and to bring her pill bottle to the next office visit. Finally, he decides to give her a prescription for another urine drug screen and tells her to go to a local laboratory near her home and give the sample in three days. One week later, Ms. Greeley returns to the office. The urine drug screen has been returned and demonstrates hydromorphone. She shows the physician her pill bottle, which has 18 pills left. The history reveals an overall 30% reduction in pain and an ability to function better. There are no medication side effects. The physician increases the dosage of gabapentin to 1,800 milligrams per day in three divided doses and doubles the dosage of nortriptyline to 50 milligrams at night. 
he continues the dosage of short-acting hydromorphone and prescribes an amount that should last three weeks if the usage during the past week continues. At the next visit, Miss Greeley is a new woman. She is taking the hydromorphone four times per day. She reports that the pain fluctuates with the dosing interval, and she experiences a severe pain flare a few times per week. Pill usage is appropriate. The physician decides to switch her to hydromorphone 12 milligrams once per day with limited access to the short-acting hydromorphone for pain flares, specifically 4 milligrams of immediate-release hydromorphone every three hours as needed, not to exceed two doses per day. He also continues to adjust the doses of the other drugs. He tells the patient that there will be monthly visits for the next three months and that her urine will be tested at the time of the next visit. Pleased with her treatment, she feels her pain is now manageable and no longer interferes with her enjoyment of life. The physician is comfortable with this treatment course for now. He hopes that the severe pain will lessen over time and allow reduction or elimination of the opioid regimen or perhaps some of the other drugs Ms. Greeley is taking, or both. But he documents that there will be ongoing assessment of the four A's, and he will continue the opioid therapy as long as the benefit clearly outweighs any side effects, the patient's function remains the same or better, and the patient consistently demonstrates adherence to the therapy. It is important to understand that opioid therapy, once started, can be stopped. Opioid drugs should not be withheld from patients with pain because treatment might hook patients for life. The decision to provide these drugs for acute pain or to undertake a trial of long-term open-ended therapy must be based on a careful medical, psychiatric, and psychosocial assessment intended to illuminate the potential benefits and risks, including the risk of problematic drug use. Prescription drug abuse is a nationwide problem. In 2007, to address concerns about safe drug use, the United States Congress passed a law mandating the Food and Drug Administration to create Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies, or REMS, for specific drugs, including opioids. REMS may be product-specific or class-specific. For prescribers, REMS may include a variety of initiatives, including registration of patients and doctors when prescribing begins and required education of the prescribers and patients concerning safe drug use. The FDA views REMS as striking, quote, a careful balance between continued access to these necessary medications and the stronger measures to reduce their risks, end quote. Clinicians need two skill sets to optimize outcomes, one related to the principles of prescribing, such as dose titration and side effect treatment, and one related to the assessment and management of risks associated with abuse, addiction, and diversion. The clinical decision to offer an opioid drug with the intention to continue it indefinitely should be implemented initially with a closely monitored approach incorporating risk stratification and cautious dosing. As the opioid regimen is adjusted and as the patient experiences a benefit and demonstrates responsible drug use, a long-term commitment to therapy can be made with periodic monitoring of the so-called four A's as a means to ensure a long-term positive outcome. We hope you found this episode on the safe use of pain medications informative and helpful. In the next episode, we'll focus on chronic pain management in special populations, women, older individuals, and minorities. To proceed to the online CME test, click on the Earn CME credit link on this page. Please also take a moment to complete a few post-assessment questions to help us measure the educational impact of this activity. 
We invite you to check back to watch future episodes of Pain TV, and thank you for watching this episode.